BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good to see you and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Well, in the wake of the horrific school shooting in Texas last week, we heard all the usual lame excuses from the gun nuts for doing nothing about guns. You know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. It's not a gun problem, it's a mental health problem. Democrats are just trying to politicize the issue. We need more armed guards in every school and every teacher needs a loaded gun in every classroom. And of course, the old fallback, the Second Amendment gives me the right to own any gun I want and as many of them as I want. All of which, of course, is pure bullshit. So we thought it was time to check in with our own constitutional expert, Ellie Mistal, to find out what the Second Amendment is really all about. You read Ellie Mistel as justice correspondent in The Nation magazine. You see him as legal commentator on MSNBC. And he's author of the new book, Let Me Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Ellie Mistel, it's so good to connect again. Uh, and thank you for joining us on the Bill Press Pod. Hi, Bill. How are you? I am doing great, although um, pretty sick, like all of us, about what we saw this week uh, in Uvalda, Texas. These poor 19 little kids, two teachers, and now we're once again in the middle of this debate about the Second Amendment. You talk about it a lot in your book, Allow Me to Retort, Ellie, Uh, and I just want to read, as you put in your book, the exact wording of the Second Amendment a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. How do we get from there to the right of an 18-year-old to buy two assault rifles and walk into an elementary school and kill 19 kids and two teachers? This is the result of the NRA, Bill. For the first 200 or so years of American history, the right to bear arms, and the need to regulate those arms sales were not in conflict. Hmm. There was no intellectual or legal space between the ideas that we needed gun regulation and safety laws and that we had a Second Amendment. That was those two ideas coexisted for almost 200 years, for over 200 years of American history. But in the 70s, hardliners of the nr uh, hardliners within the nra kind of took over that organization they the the, the gun nuts call it the revolt in cincinnati hardliners mm. took over that that organization which up until that time had been a relatively benign association of bambi killers a sportsman right you know basically duck hunters deer <laughs> and, hunters yeah and they uh, essentially invented a new ad campaign um, that tied the Second Amendment to a nearly unfettered right um, to, to have weapons um, for self-defense. 
that idea was adopted by the Republican Party, kind of hook, line, and sinker. That idea was then adopted by Republican justices of a certain breed. Remember, it wasn't too long ago that, 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 that Warren Burger in the 70s said that the NRA's interpretation of the Second Amendment was a fraud mm. perpetrated mm. on the American people. All right? But the federal society, the, the, the group, the organization that gets to pick all of the Republican judges uh, now uh, bought the NRA uh, uh, ad campaign. And so then we get to 2008 in a case called DC versus Heller. Yep. Yep. Where Justice Antonin Scalia makes up for the first time in American history a new right to bear arms specifically for the purposes of personal self defense. Again, that never happened before. Um, Scalia made it up in 2008. And, and that's, that is why we are here. So now, even when we try to have gun regulations, those regulations are thought to be in conflict with the blood-soaked interpretation of the Second Amendment as promulgated by the NRA and conservative justices on the Supreme Court. But this whole idea of self-defense, right, is bogus, isn't it? I mean, it's com- from the founding perspective, it is completely bogus. So the the idea behind so let's let's go back to the founding. Let's go back to 1787. You know. We're, yeah. we're, we're out there where, you know, we, we, we don't have a lot of, we don't have Robitussin. We don't have cell phones, but we have um, slaveholding colonists uh, and uh, rich slaveholding white men who are designing a new government, right? Most of them are under thir- are, are, are 30, are, are in their 30s, I should say. They're designing a new government. They write the Constitution. They don't think, the authors of the Constitution do not think that the Constitution needs amendments, what we now call the Bill of Rights. They thought their document was fine. But a different group of generally slaveholding white men Mm -hmm. um, decided that they wanted the Constitution to specifically protect certain rights. That's how we got um, the, the, the Bill of Rights in the first place. Now, the argument for the Second Amendment was made by Patrick Henry, was made by George Mason, who was then governor of Virginia. They wanted the Second Amendment because they because they knew that the well-regulated militia was the best way for southern states to put down slave revolts. That is not me being hyperbolic. That is what they said. They understood. They, uh, Henry says that the North hates slavery. And if the federal government has the right to raise the militia, militia, they might not raise it to put down slave revolts. You see, like, you gotta remember, Bill, it's, it's difficult, right, to hold people in bondage against their will yeah, unless right. you have a numerical and military superiority over those people, right? So in certain pockets of the South, in certain parts of Virginia, in certain parts of South Carolina, this, the enslaved people outnumbered the white folks. And the way that they would put slave revolts down was to raise the state militia. Well, the Second Amendment gave the states, the individual, the right to raise the militia, not the federal government. And that's why they wanted it. That's why yeah. well-regulated militia is the first part of the Second Amendment. That's mm-hmm. what they were thinking. Right. Had nothing to do with personal self-defense unless you count enslaved people trying to break free as self-defense for white folks. 
so just like so much else in this country, as the book, The 1619 Project, uh, uh, outlines very, very powerfully, uh, this whole idea of gun control is, I mean, of, I'm sorry, the second, their interpretation of the Second Amendment is rooted in racism. Still to still today, correct? Absolutely. Look, the the biggest gun control person was patron saint of the Republican Party, Ronald Reagan, in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Because in the sixties, the Black Panthers were arming themselves in California and going on what they called cop watching, kind of trailing the police with loaded uh, rifles, right? Oh, white folks in California didn't like that so much. And so Ronald Reagan, month for, like he, Ronald Reagan, when he was governor of California, passed one of the more restrictive gun laws mm-hmm. ever in this country. And again, yeah. that had, now I can argue that, that that gun law was racist. I can argue that it was racially biased, but I can't argue that it was in conflict with the Second Amendment. And in fact, no justice did argue that that uh, California gun restriction law was in conflict with the Second Amendment. Nobody did argue that the Munford Act was in conflict with the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. So again, this this current interpretation that the Second Amendment allows for an unfettered right to gun access, that was made up recently, more recently than, oh, I don't know, Roe v. Wade. Yeah. More recently than uh, 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 Griswold v. Connecticut, the case that gives... Um, the right to contraception. More recently than Loving v. Virginia, the case that allows um, for interracial marriages. Those concepts have a longer history in our laws than the current uh, Republican interpretation of the Second Amendment. So is there, by the way, uh, just as a tangent, uh, as a Californian, I want to point out, Ronald Reagan also signed the biggest tax bill hiking taxes increasing in the history of California too. A lot of people don't want to talk about that either. (laughs) Um, So is there anything we can do about it other than what new members of the Supreme Court? I mean, look, I'm always for new members of the Supreme Court. I'm always for changing the composition of that court because I don't, I do not perceive that anything good can survive six conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Bill, understand the Supreme Court is about to respond to the the shootings in Texas, respond to the shootings in Buffalo, respond to whatever shootings happen between us recording this and this going live. The Supreme Court is about to respond to the epidemic of violence in this country by further liberalizing gun laws mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks. Right. There's a case right now called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin that the Supreme Court took specifically to weaken New York State's uh, gun permitting requirements and thereby weaken the gun permitting requirements of every state. They're basically going to try to turn New York and every other state into Texas. And they're going to release that opinion. It's going to, I believe, it's a prediction, but I believe that's going to be a 6-3 opinion with all six conservatives sticking together. I honestly believe if it wasn't for the Texas shooting, that this, that decision would have come out on Tuesday. First uh, first decision day in June is when I thought that opinion was going to come out. Now, because of the shooting, they might try to hold it a couple of weeks and hope people forget. But what's what the Supreme Court this month mu- or you know next month will make it even easier for people to get guns without n- not just without a background check without even having to register for a permit to get those guns 
the Supreme Court is going to do that. So when you say, like, what can we do beyond new justices, like, the, even the laws we already have, the conservative justices are willing to take away. There, I can't imagine a new law that the conservative justices would let stand. You want to talk about background checks? You want to talk about an assault right, rifle span? Those are great ideas. The Supreme Court won't let us have it. The unelected, unaccountable branch of government will not let us vote ourselves into a more safe union. Right. And at this point, Republicans in the Senate will not even debate the issue, right, or vote on the issue, uh, which is unlikely to change. As we speak, uh, there's this period that's been sort of set aside now to see if Republicans and Democrats can get control uh, and pass some, some kind of sensible gun safety legislation. What do you think the chances of that are? I mean, I think McConnell is fooling people. I think he's. I think this is a, this is a feint by McConnell. He's going to say that we tried. He's going to. Oh, yeah. He's only going to propose something ridiculous that won't help at all, mm-hmm. and Democrats won't go for it. And then McConnell can be like, "We tried, but the Democrats are too too liberal and extreme, and nothing will happen." McConnell's very smart about this. He under he understands that after every eruption of violence. There are calls for them to do something, and he understands that people lose focus if McConnell just waits on it, right? If he just does nothing for a couple of weeks, the media will move on, people will move on. We have accepted at some really disturbing level, people have accepted this violence as unavoidable. People have accepted dead children as a price to pay that's worth it because they want Republicans in power. That's that's what people have decided, and, and McConnell knows it. And McConnell knows that his best strategy is just to wait him out. Oh, uh, God, you're so right, and it's so sad. Uh, so uh, just uh, infuriating. Uh, now, let's... I mean, hey. you have kids, right? Like, I, I've got... Yeah, I've got a, yeah, yeah. I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, you know? And right. it, it's... I, yeah. I don't. It's difficult to process what other people are willing to let happen to my kids. Now, as a as a as a black father, I've dealt with this for a long time with the police that people are just they just view it as a price of living in America. Yeah, my kids might get shot by the police or having a you know skittles at the wrong place at the wrong time. Like the people just accept that my kids have to bear that cost right Mm -hmm. and now people also accept that all kids not just black kids but all kids have to bear the cost of school shootings for again an interpretive philosophy of the second amendment that didn't exist 50 years ago for the gun lobby for you know my kids have to bear the cost of being shot because smith and wesson needs profit margins like it's 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 an it's insane to me that this is something that we've accepted because and we know that it's insane because nowhere else in the industrialized economically wealthy world do people accept this. We are an outlier. No other country does what we do. No other country would stand for it. 
And yeah, and the idea that we have this mental health problem right in this country, that we're the only ones where we have people who have mental health problems or some it's it's just it is totally other countries have mental health have people with mental yeah. health problems. Other countries have disaffected male youths, right? Other countries have weak politicians and powerful special interests. Other countries do not have a high court that is willing to invalidate laws passed by the elected representatives based on a fringe and uh, uh, cultist theory. So there you mentioned uh, this decision from uh, in the New York gun case that's coming down uh, for the, from the Supreme Court uh, any day now. Uh, there's also another big decision coming down on Roe v. Wade. I want to take a quick break here on the podcast, and let's get into that when we come back, Alec, okay? Whenever we see examples of gun violence, like in Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo, New York, just all in the last couple of weeks, we all ask ourselves, what can we do? Is there anything we can do to help stop this horrific gun violence in this country? Well, one thing we can do is we can write a check, no matter how big it really helps in the uh, in the effort to get some sensible gun control legislation. And there are several great organizations uh, that are dedicated to this purpose, to get, again, sensible gun safety measures at the state and the federal level. Those organizations, uh, the ones that I know of at least, include Moms Demand Action, Brady United Against Gun Violence, Guns Down America, Giffords Pack and Every Town for Gun Safety. A link to every one of those organizations will be included in the episode notes to this podcast. So check it out and send whatever you can, whatever help you can to help these organizations accomplish their mission of good, strong gun control measures, both at the state and the federal level. Thank you. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back. Today's guest, Ellie Mistal, he's justice correspondent for The Nation, legal commentator. You see him often on MSNBC and author of a great book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. So um, we're not only in a debate over the Second Amendment, we're now in a debate over the 14th Amendment, Ellie. And Samuel Lito says, uh-uh, boy the right to have an abortion. I don't read that in the constitution. Therefore it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's, it's real bad. So the basis of Alito's draft opinion, and it's still a draft opinion right now. They might 
They might yeah. massage yeah. the language a little bit before it, uh, it fully comes out. But the basis of his opinion is that fundamental rights do not exist unless they are well established in the legal history of this country. I'll note again, um, he doesn't hold the same standard for gun rights, so there's yeah. that. But um, for for women to have, for, from Alito's perspective, women do not have a right to their own bodily autonomy if that right cannot be shown to be deeply grounded in the history of this country. And Alito says that when you look at the history of this country, we don't have um, a, a, a founding basis um, for a woman's right to an abortion. And Alito is right um, that the the constitutional uh, the Constitution and the founding fathers um, did not recognize the right for a woman to control her own body. I would simply point out that that's because the the founding fathers didn't recognize the right for a woman to complete her sentence. Yeah, right. Or let alone okay. vote. Let alone right. vote, right? Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the founding fathers, in addition to being racist colonists, uh, uh, wealthy landowners were also extremely misogynist. They didn't recognize women to have rights full stop. So, of course, they didn't think that women had the right to their own body. Now, if that's important to you in terms of, like, how we should interpret the Constitution in 2022, I literally cannot help you. Like, there, there, there is nothing that I can say that can uh, th- that can counter the argument that we should interpret our current laws based on what racist, misogynist slaveholders thought in the 18th century. That's stupid. Okay, so that 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 the basis of Alito's opinion in Roe v. Wade is that Thomas Jefferson, when he was raping Sally Hemings, <clears throat> he didn't mm-hmm. think that Sally Hemings had a right to an abortion. That's a ridiculous, stupid, and bad argument, but that is what the conservatives are rolling with to overturn 50 years of settled law of precedent about what about a woman's right to choose. And, and, and saying, in effect, well, for real, that the government can force a woman to give birth, right? Yup. Which is, well, our abortion rights are located in the Substantive Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That's how they did it in the 70s. That's how they did it in Roe v. Wade. And mm-hmm. that's fine. I, I think substantive due process is, is, a, is, a, is a good way to, to secure abortion rights. Basically, substantive due process is um, the idea that the law is supposed to be fair, that the idea that um, um, rights, uh, that we have rights that are unenumerated to make all the other rights work. You know, I like to make the analogy, um, mm-hmm. the freedom of speech. It doesn't say that you have the freedom to see but clearly, if we're going to have the freedom to read people's work, we must also have a substantive right to see. Um, so, so that's a way to understand substantive due process. And I think substantive due process is fine. I personally would secure abortion, abortion rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the mm-hmm. 14th Amendment. Because I think that if a man has control over their reproductive system during the entirety of their lives, so should a woman, right? If a man right. can have control over his uh, uh, reproductive system for the you know five or six minutes of glory uh, that that is conception, then a woman should have control over her reproductive system uh, um, for the entirety of the gestational period as well. So I, that's where I would put put them. That's where Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have put 
mm-hmm. um, um, abortion rights. But there are other arguments too. I think that you can that you can uh, 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 secure abortion rights under the Thirteenth Amendment. Because to get to your point, Bell, the idea that the state can force somebody to labor against their will for free is already unconstitutional. We already had a war about whether or not that was going to be a thing. There is no compelling state interest that is so great that it can force people to do things against their will for free. We've already been down that road. So I would secure abortion rights under the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment. I've got 8th Amendment arguments. I've got 9th Amendment (laughs) arguments. I've got 1st Amendment arguments. Like, there are lots of different ways to get at this cap. So uh, there, of course, must be other rights that we've come to um, maybe take for granted that are not enumerated in the Constitution, right? So it doesn't stop here. Absolutely not. So the, 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 the legal basis for abortion rights is the recognition of substantive due process and the right to privacy. That was first articulated not in the abortion context, but in the contraception context. That comes from Griswold v. Connecticut, which is the the case that secured contraception rights, interestingly, for married women. It took him a while to to extend contraception rights to unmarried women. But Griswold v. Connecticut is on the same legal basis as Roe v. Wade. So if you're coming for Roe v. Wade, you are definitionally coming for contraception. And you're coming for gay marriage because the rights of marriage and the right to get busy in a Burger King bathroom with whomever, however you want, those are also under the right to privacy and substantive due process. And when we say they're coming for gay marriage next, again, I am not being hyperbolic. I am not making that up. That is just what they say. Mm -hmm. Mike Mm -hmm. Braun, Senator from Indiana, said that he thought that loving v. Virginia should be overturned. Now, he walked that back when he realized how stupid he sounded. But loving Virginia is the right to, uh, is the case that made interracial marriages okay. Mike Bronson th- thought that those should be overturned. John Cornyn, senator from Texas, specifically during the Kentaji Brown Jackson confirmation hearings, said that he thought Obergefell, that's the case that secured the right to marriage equality, that he thought Obergefell should be overturned. So Republicans are not hiding the ball about what they're going to do next. Uh, right. And and Alito claiming that this, this doesn't, doesn't go beyond abortion. I want to ask you about Alito. I mean, so I, I look, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I, I depend on people like you <laughs> to, to get, give my legal advice. But I read in the New York Times, there was this guy, you, you talk about uh, our founding fathers. Alito went back even farther. He went back to this guy, Lord Matthew Hale, that I had never heard of, a jurist in England in the 1600s, who basically said that women's rights depend on not encroaching on men's rights too much, right? And Alito quotes him eight times in that draft opinion of his. Eight times yep. a guy from, this is a whole white guy from the 1600s. We have an advance. I mean, he, Alito, has an advance beyond that. Yeah, I mean, look, we're conservative. what conservatives do when they want to do something that isn't grounded in precedence and modernity is that they make something up and they'll go back as these and they'll go back as far as they have to to find somebody who agreed with them at some point about whatever right if they had to go back to, to to 
King Nebuchadnezzar to, to justify killing somebody uh, and, and, and the death penalty, they would go back to King Nebuchadnezzar. They don't, they're, they're not, see, one of the things that I think people don't understand about the Supreme Court is that they think that, like, good arguments can change how they think, right? That if you, there's an argument that you can make to a Sam Alito or a Neil Gorsuch or a Clarence Thomas that's going to change the parameters here, that the hypocrisy that they show will one day catch up with them. No, that's not how it works. These people do not care. They have the power to take away women's rights, so they're going to take away women's rights because they can. That's mm. all that matters. It's a zero-sum game. The mm -hmm. conservatives have power, and when the conservatives have power, this is what they'll do. This is what they were sent to do. Remember, who did Alito replace? Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the fifth deciding moderate swing vote and upholding abortion rights to in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Right. And Republicans were very angry at Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy and David Souter, three Republican-appointed justices who all cited with, wrote for the majority in Planned Parenthood, which saved Roe v. Wade the last time this came up in the 90s. And Republicans basically developed an entire legal theory around getting justices who would never betray them again on this issue. And Alito is one of them. So this has been a this has been a generational goal for conservatives that they are about to to succeed on. There's no arguing with these people. They've already made up their minds. Right. It's and if you want to stop them, you, you don't stop them by out arguing them. You stop them by putting more people who agree with you on the court than them. Well, I want to get to that because in your book you end, and I, I was um, I was impressed and a little surprised, but you go there in the end about changing the court. Pretty dramatically, uh, term limits and increasing the number of justices. Yep, the, the it's the only way. It's the only when the the court is extremely out of balance. It is it, it is it is it is no longer responsive in any way to where to the main center mass of the country. And the way you fix that is by adding more. Justices. My argument is that we need to add at least twenty more. Because you know, twenty, really? Right? Because because there are reform reasons beyond revenge reasons, right? When I see, like, right now, I think the proposal is like three or four extra judges. That, that's fine, but that 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 is a tit for tat revenge kind of thing. I want to go plus twenty because that will completely reshape the nature of the Supreme Court. Twenty extra judges is that that would mean twenty nine justices in total would, would would mean that the Supreme Court would remain as powerful as it is, but each individual justice would become dramatically less powerful, which is what we need. Mm -hmm. the, 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 it was never intended to have nine unelected high arbiters, clergy, essentially, who can just willy-nilly invalidate laws passed by the people's representatives. That's not a democracy. That's a justocracy. That's what we're living in. So 29 justices decreases the power of any individual uh, judge. Then you get 29 justices. The 20 that I would add would all believe that term limits were constitutional. So then we could pass term limits, and then these people wouldn't serve for life, and that would also be good, right? But then the other reason why I want more, just dramatically more justices is because having dramatically more justices makes for dramatically more moderate opinions. 
Right now, all you need to do is get five of your friends to agree with your crazy legal theory, and you can have it, right? Yeah, right. All Thomas has to do is convince four other Republicans. All Alito has to do is convince four other Republicans, and that's why their decisions are so extreme. But ask anybody who's ever tried to, like, organize a dinner party, right? Right. Like, if you're trying to get 15 people, which is how much you would need for a majority in a 29-person court, if you're trying to get 15 people to go out to dinner, you're not going to any place nice. You're not going to any place interesting. <laughs> You're not going to, hey, let's go try the Ethiopian. No, you're going you're gonna to go to Applebee's. You're going to go to the Olive Garden. You're going to go to some center mass bland place. And that's what happens when you get 15 justices um, on the court. Like, if you, if you just think about it this way, even where they are right now, Republicans have six uh, conservatives on the court, and they regularly can't get all six to stay on the same page. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. They regularly end up with just five. They're not going to get all six, I do not believe, for their um, overturning of abortion decision, right? So just even within the party, even within the ideology, the vagaries of individual humans is such that it makes extreme positions much harder the more people you put on the court. What I want is for a Supreme Court that is not regularly overruling the will of the people in the most extreme way they can think of. And the way that I get there is having so many people on the court that their decisions almost by by necessity become more narrow and more moderate. And you also point out that 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 having an increased number, 29, whatever it is, they, they could um, divide up the work, right? So that there might be one, one group that handles financial cases, another group that handles whatever. That's one way of doing it. You could have, yeah. have different expertise. But if you just look at the other lower circuit courts, all of which, um, almost all of which have more than nine justices, um, the, Cal the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, for instance, has 29 judges on it. Um, they hear most cases in three judge panels. Uh-huh, right. Chosen at random mm -hmm. from the overall 29 people on the bench. Folks, that's impartiality. That that changes not only the kinds of decisions you get, it changes the kinds of cases you bring because you no longer know who's wh whether or not your team is going to be on the panel that hears your case. I can prove that because if you can just look at what happened in the Dobbs case, you can just look at what happened in this abortion case. Mississippi first came to the Supreme Court simply asking it to uphold its 15-week ban on abortions, right? Right. Then Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Yeah. Then Amy Coney Barrett replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And once uh, Mississippi saw that they had a sixth pro-life uh, forced birth justice on the court, Mississippi changed its argument from uphold our 15-week ban to overturn Roe v. Wade. Right. Yeah. Just because they knew who would be hearing their case? Mm -hmm. Well, if you have three judge panels, you have 29 justices, three judge panels, that goes away. Mississippi doesn't know which of the 29 will be on their panel. Maybe it's Gorsuch, Thomas, and Barrett, but maybe it's Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. And that means that their argument, again, I'm all about having narrow, more mainstream opinions that because they don't know who's going to hear their case, their argument becomes much more narrow, much more mainstream something they think that can they can get through regardless of who ends up on their panel. 
can the full circuit over uh, you know hear a case that's been overrule a case that's been judged on a three judge panel? Yes, of course, by a majority vote, the whole the whole group, the whole body, um, can review a case. But at that point, if you're overturning what your three judge panel already said, man, you better have a good reason. Better have a good reason, and it's not going to happen that often. Uh, it doesn't happen say. that often. Right. Um, so if, if I have to ask you about one other kind of reform. How about a reform that the wife or husband of a sitting Supreme Court justice cannot be out actively working on an issue that the sitting justice is voting on? Look, I, of course, I'm talking about Ginny Thomas. Jesus. <laughs> well, the Supreme Court is in desperate need of ethics reforms, although I struggle to call it reform. Because what the Supreme Court really needs is ethics at all, of any kind. The Supreme Court is, and this always blows people's mind when they hear it for the first time, the Supreme Court is the only court in America that operates without ethics rules. Every other single court, from the Court of Appeals to a state traffic court in Peoria, has a code of ethics that they are beholden to follow. But the Supreme Court is the only court that has no code of ethics, that has no statutory requirements for their position, that leaves it to the discretion of the, their own justices what their ethics are. Which is why nobody can force Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from insurrection cases that his wife is a part of. Nobody can force him to do that because it's his own discretion and his own discretion only when he does or does not recuse himself. He cannot be disqualified. He cannot be disqualified by any independent third body or arbiter because the Supreme Court is the only court in America that does not allow for that to happen. We should change that. Congress should change that. Yeah, boy. Oh, God, we're just getting started. Ellie, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Look, man, one one thing that I try to tell people, the conservatives have spent a generation winning and reshaping the Supreme Court to do its bidding. Mm -hmm. And people who would oppose those conservatives have to have that same kind of commitment. It's not just about intensity, but it's about the long game because conservatives have been playing that game for 30 or 40 years. Boy, and I have to say, they know how to play it and we don't. Right, that's we, we don't even know it's a fight yet. We don't we, we don't we don't know it's yeah. a war, right? We, we're losing a war in part because we haven't taken the field. Yep, yep. Well, you have, my friend. Uh, you are <laughs> out there, and I thank you for it. I, I admire you for it. Uh, I just want to recommend everybody again pick it up. Allow me to retort a black guy's guide to the Constitution, uh, and you can read Ellie Mistel in the Nation as well to watch him on MSNBC. Ellie, thanks so much for your time today, and keep up the good fight. We're depending on you. Thank you so much, Bill. Have a nice one. And that's it for today's podcast with Ellie Mistal. A big thank you to Ellie for rejoining us here on the Bill Press Pod, and thanks to all of you for joining in. Always good to have you with us. We'll be back on Friday with our weekly roundtable with three top Washington political reporters. Congress is not in session this week, but believe it or not, there is a group of bipartisan senators who are working, trying to achieve some kind of compromise on gun control. We'll check on their progress and bring you up to date on anything else that's happening here in our nation's capital. That's our next edition of the Bill Press Pod on Friday, the Reporters' Roundtable. Meantime, 
Have a great week. We'll see you on Friday. <laughs>